So another welcome to Industrial Marketing Live. I'm Peyton Warren and I'm a strategist here at Gorilla76. Uh, I've been at Gorilla. This is my work anniversary week, two years as of this week. So woohoo. And uh, I'm one of your IML hosts. Thanks, everyone. If you have a work anniversary, I'm curious. Um, January work anniversaries, put them in the chat. Um, today's topic is copy that will convert. And to talk us through what good copy is, we have our very own Alan. Benewald from um, from Gorilla. He is our conversion copywriter, which is kind of a new role at our agency. And uh, it's been really, really helpful to have someone that's dedicated just to writing, quote unquote, good copy, um, specifically for the medium of advertising um, and uh, stuff like that. So really excited. Alan, say hello. Uh, anything else you want to tell folks about yourself before we kind of jump into the topic? Um, well, hi, thanks for being here. It's my uh, first time joining in on a webinar like this and leading a talk. So a little nervous, but very excited. Hope you all enjoy. Um, I'm from middle of nowhere, Missouri, a farm boy, got a bachelor's in creative writing from MU and then a master's in journalism from MU, worked as a journalist for the better part of a decade, been in industrial marketing for going on uh, three years or a little over three years now, I guess. And um, yeah, excited to finally be able to talk about something that I've been obsessed with for you know six months now um, and uh, just nerd out with you guys. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, the way we're gonna do this is I'm gonna share my screen and just go through some talking points. And then I'm gonna close the screen share and we can chat, ask questions, do whatever y'all wanna do. So here we go. Um, forgive me if there are any typos here, that would be incredibly embarrassing given the circumstances. <laughs> we're all human, right? Yeah. Uh, if you see a typo, put it in the chat. Yeah, if chat GDP is on this call, then you need to say so now. Um, so can everyone see the lovely title card? All right, great. So as everyone can probably expect, the goal of writing good conversion copy is to get conversions. Uh, easier said than done. So um, first thing here, key objectives here. So first things first, you want in-feed consumption. And in this context, it's not, we don't want people to leave LinkedIn. We do want people to leave LinkedIn, but we want them to leave LinkedIn being completely ready to buy, knowing that this solution is going to solve my pain points, right? So you need to give them all the info they need to qualify themselves as a buyer, right? So um, one thing to be aware of there is uh, the emotions that your message and buying process are inspiring as you're doing that, right? Because you can inspire a lot of different emotions with the way that you frame your offer, your pain points, your solutions. So it's something to be aware of because the emotions you inspire will also affect whether or not you're going to get repeat business most likely. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and quickly stop the share on that one. Uh, any questions for the, on the group? No? I think we should maybe clarify, Mary, um, in-feed consumption a little bit more too. Like, do you have anything to add there? Yeah. So like Alan said on that slide, it just means that you're putting all of the knowledge that you want your reader to take away in the actual ad itself or in the post that you're posting on social media. So like I said in the chat, this point alone is a huge point of debate in the performance marketing world. And I'm sure Kevin has some, some really great commentary on that because the goal of some 
performance marketing or conversion copywriting is to get someone to click and then they convert on like a landing page. So the idea is to not give them hardly any information or like a teaser or some kind of clickbait in the actual ad so that they'll click the ad and go to the landing page and convert. So the point alone that Alan said we should be giving the whole story in the actual post itself is huge. That alone is revolutionary when we're talking about um, digital marketing. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Kevin. Totally. So yeah, in B2B, in industrial marketing, right? Like we're looking to educate, inform, build a brand. Um, We're not looking to have a conversion happen the first time somebody sees an ad. Um, we're, We're like sort of dealing with these really long sales cycles, right? Like how often is it somebody's gonna click on an ad and then go to your landing page and then buy like in industrial oven, right? Like that's just not how people behave on social media. But if you are optimizing your ads for that in-feed consumption where you're getting people to actually consume the information and start building awareness of who you are, um, it's it kind of matches what the actual real life sales cycle is of awareness, consideration, conversion, right? Like we're not looking to do all of those things within five seconds um, with a B2B ad that we're serving on a platform like LinkedIn or Facebook. And one other thing to keep in mind is like why I think it's a bad idea to do those kind of bait and switch or even just baity um conversion copy ads is because you're with these small audiences we're dealing with in B2B more likely to frankly piss people off because you're not giving them what they want. You are doing something that causes them disappointment, right? And anything that any moment of disappointment they're associating with your brand makes them less likely to take you seriously the next time. And I'm probably going to create a just scroll past every time they see your brand. So you want to decrease cortisol levels as much as possible throughout your entire buying process, right? You want it to be as smooth, pleasant, and predictable as possible. You know, throw in some great, good surprises, but great, good surprises, not anything that's going to uh, make people have a bad attitude. Before we move to the next point, um, we have a couple of questions in the chat that have sort of been answered, but I think it makes um, sense to talk about it. Um, all together here. And one is like, you know, just an example of giving that whole story. And we're going to show some example ads here at the, at the end, but, um, but also, uh, you know, just what length of time, like how you're telling that story. Um, Aaron, do you want to speak to that at all? Uh, Mary, curious your thoughts. Yeah, go for it, Aaron. Sorry, I was answering a different question in the chat. So just like, (laughs) how to, is this Beth's question about kind of how to space Mm -hmm. out? Okay. Yeah. So I think like campaign structure and like different ad types, I know Alan's planning to talk about later, but you want to tell a complete message with different types of ads. You can't say everything you want to say in one ad. And you also don't want to just like attack people with too many ads in their feed. Um, So like frequency, I would say you want to get in front of them maybe like one or two times a week. We say like five is like a frequency per month is pretty good, but it's kind of arbitrary. You just have to think about how much variety of content you're giving and um, if you're annoying people, basically. It's kind of just like a gut check. And so you'll have like a blend of, 
you know, some social proof, some helpful articles, um, maybe some uh, direct comparisons or handling their objections. We'll we'll talk about all this later. But yeah, it's just kind of a blend that all comes together to tell a complete story over time. Yeah. And once you have, you know, we'll talk about this later, but once you know the pain points that are most relevant to your target audience, you know, it's pretty, it can be a lot easier to, to decide what that blend needs to look like. Um, so any other questions on that talk before we move on? All right. So I'm going to share again here. Okay. So another thing that you need to do is create relevance, simplicity, and message matching between all of the different layers of your funnel, right? So they need to go from the ad to the landing page and be 3000% sure that they are on the exact same spot that they intended to be uh, when they click that ad, right? So um, this is another thing with just reducing frustration and um, creating as much happiness as possible by giving people what they want. That's ultimately what we're trying to do, give people what they want in as smooth a way as possible. Um, in all things we're going to be doing here, including the copy that you're going to use, right? Um, so a quick tip to be able to create some easy message matching is to use the same key terms and the tone in your ad CTA, especially, and your landing page H1. You want to try to keep be in mind of this on all of your copies throughout an ad. But if you've got to really hit the nail on the head, then just, you know, use the same key terms in your CTA and your landing page. So it goes from the last thing they read to the first thing they're going to read next in one easy step. Um, does that make sense to everyone? Any questions on that? Yeah, a good example um, is probably the um, Google Ads we talked about last IML. So if you are bidding on a keyword like industrial air compressor, your ad should say industrial air compressor. And then the headline on your landing page should say industrial air compressor. It just makes it very smooth for the reader to understand um, the flow. So you don't want to have like industrial air compressor. And then the headline on your landing page is something relevant to like a problem or solution that they're having. So um, are, is your um, downstream um, operation breaking down? It's like, well, that's not why I clicked this ad. I clicked this ad for an industrial air compressor. So that's just one example. Mm -hmm. One thing I'll, I'll warn, because I feel like sometimes we get a little overboard with repeating the key terms. You know, you, there is a point where you're getting a little redundant. So, you know, there's work to be done to grab people's attention, but also remember readability. Yeah, it, it, it can just be really tempting when you're putting together an ad if you haven't like already sort of built the strategy and like, your vision for what it's supposed to accomplish beforehand can be really tempting to kind of have incongruent elements, right? Like you write copy that doesn't match your, your, your ad headline. It doesn't match the image. You just throw a random image on the ad. You're like, Oh, this will work. And then you're sending them to your, like your homepage, right? Like that's making it really hard on the user. So um, yeah, what we're getting at, we're not, we're not trying to be too repetitive, but we're just saying like, think about how a human behaves on on these ad platforms right like what do they need they need you to solve their problem and you need to make it pretty obvious for them um so that's how i think about message matching yeah and to the point about the image i didn't want to get too far into this because this is a whole other can of worms but one thing we always said in the newspaper days was uh say dog show dog right 
If you're talking about a thing, your ad photo needs to be about that thing. If you're describing an emotion in your ad, then your your photo needs to express that emotion as well, right? So that's just a real easy way. If you see the ad and that it's, uh, anyway, you get it. It's not too complicated. Um, all right, any other questions? Um, just a little, we have another question in the chat from Aaron, um, just about how you think about the um, repetition in ads. Like sometimes it feels like you're saying the same thing over and over and over because you're just kind of like reusing similar phrases. But her comment is that it might not be as repetitive to the customer seeing the ads. Like, what are your thoughts on that? There's a strategy with that. It's called the mere exposure effect, which is the more that you hear something and experience something, the more likely you are to accept it at face value. So there is an element that you will want to do that in copy. Um, you just got to be careful. You know, you got to be very intentional. Is the is the repeating this phrase doing the thing you want it to do? Or is it just coming across annoying and like you don't know how to write? You know, because it's still got to sound like a human being wrote this thing for human beings to read. So if you're just throwing terms out there because you think you need to use it more and not placing it in a way that the reader is like, oh, OK, I see what they're doing here. Then you're going to hurt yourself more than you help yourself. And I just want to pull in Matthew Olson's comment from the chat because it's hilarious. This, did no one watch QVC or HSN? Like such a great example. You can watch it for hours and they're real. They're saying the same thing over and over again. But somehow it's entertaining. But yeah, you got to add enough variety to keep, you know, people amused. The The ability to amuse somebody can go a long way in that regard. You got to be witty enough to say the same thing twice and have it mean something different enough for them to appreciate it again. Any other questions? All right, I'm going to go ahead and share again if that's all the same to everyone else. Okay, so this is one I won't spend a whole lot of time on because we've probably talked about this in this group a lot. but. Um, it, you need to have your content be useful to the reader, even if they might not necessarily buy your product, right? You want them to go away from your landing page or your ad going, hmm, I understand my industry, my pain points, the potential for me to do something about them better than I'd had before, right? If they click away from your ad or your landing page, having actually read it and they didn't learn something, you've probably failed and they don't have a good reason to come back to you in the future, right? So that's why you want to provide that info is that you make yourself into that resource where they're going to come back to you. And probably if they're feeling like they don't want to spend a whole lot of time doing a whole other buying process, they're just going to go with you by default because they already know you know what you're talking about. Um, so yeah, like I said, build your brand reputation, future for reciprocity. Uh, that's a big um, other cognitive bias that you can lean on, creating this sense of reciprocity that they want to do something for you because you've done something for them. It's just a human nature thing. Um, so yeah, uh, that one's not too complicated here. So any thoughts or questions on that before we just keep cruising? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about like providing value, the easiest way, like quick little takeaway for this is to be as specific as possible. So everyone in the industrial space is saying this product saves you time, money, energy, resources. Like no one is saying this product saves you two hours downstream on your maintenance line. Like the more specific you can be, the better, because that's actually providing value. All that other stuff is fluff and no one pays attention to it. Yeah, that's a great point. To speak to a pain point, I probably should have talked about this more already. You need to specifically talk about their pain point. You know, energy efficiency isn't a pain point. Losing X amount of money from your budget that you really need to do something and you feel that hurt because you don't have it is the pain point. So you got to really nail down and make them 
feel it again, you know, make them remember that thing that hurt them most recently. Yeah. The difference between a benefit and a feature, right? Like what is the problem that's being solved versus how do you do it? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the more specific, the better, because that's also going to get people to stop scrolling because they're like, oh, this person is talking to me. And especially in our industry, you're rarely getting spoken to specifically as a person in some of these job functions. Um, you're probably either not spoken about in your media consumption very much, um, or it's in a very bland, technical way that doesn't make you feel like a like you're understood. So I know B2B tends to be lean on the technical, but there's there's room to find the middle ground there and the human element in each of those. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So any other thoughts or questions? Okay, so now that was a great segue to custom research because we're going to decide which pain points are worth talking about. This is how you get there. This is why we, we prophesize and talk about all the benefits you can get from custom research all the time. Because if you don't start with this, it's very difficult to not just be guessing and to know that you're gonna get the nail on the head on your first try, or maybe at least, you know, your third try. Um, so we uh, like to do customer research before we really do anything else. Um, and the key to good customer research is talking to customers you actually want to have more of, right? Don't talk to the people that you kind of wish you didn't have any of, because then you're gonna end up attracting more of them. You wanna talk to your uh, key buyers, your favorite buyers, um, and while you're talking to them, ask them questions um, about the hardest parts of their job. Get them to start thinking about their job with some emotional context to it. That way you know how to speak to their pain points and how to present your your solution in a way that's going to be attractive to them, right? Um, so while you're listening to them talk, listen for those terms in the vernacular that they use, um, both in the technical lingo and in the like more slang terms that they're using, because that's how you're gonna get their attention in feed, right? You're gonna use those terms and say, hey, this is something that somebody said in the shop floor yesterday. I know I know what it's like to be in your business. You should pay attention to me. Um, and emphasize their problems and aspirations, as we said, in a very specific way. Imagine yourself in their shoes and describe it in the way that you think that they're most likely to have experienced it. Okay. Any uh, questions about customer research? I know I kind of breezed through a whole can of worms on that one too. Um, and there's a lot of best practices involved in trying to get the most out of an interview. Um, so any questions about just like good interviewing and stuff like that for now? Yeah, and we've had an IML session on that. This is all up on YouTube if you're interested on customer research from last year <clears throat> with uh, one of our senior writers here at Gorilla. Um, but uh question that came up in the chat that I think is just gonna is is probably cycling through everyone's mind too is like, okay, talking to customers is sometimes very hard. What can you do if you're not able to talk to a customer? What's the next best thing? Well, hopefully there is some sort of an online community that you can look into. Um Reddit, um, I'm told has got practically every community in existence in it at this point. So, but look around for any place where people are talking about it. Um, look into any sort of cultural hubs that you can to try to get the more um, slang or the cultural zeitgeist about the attitude. Um, but another thing too, is just looking at the buying process and saying, yeah, as a human being, when I know I need to get this, 
and I know that this, that, and the other things stand in my way, how would any human being respond to this? And just be honest with yourself. You know, there's, there's probably um, an easy answer there that you can at least use to start testing. And the more annoying part is you're going to rely on your testing a lot more and, you know, trial and error, but it's what you got to work with. Yeah, curious to hear from the the group here too, if anyone has had um, a lot of success with kind of surveilling, sur sur surveying groups um, of any kind, whether LinkedIn, Facebook, Kelly mentioned those in the chat, Reddit. If you've done that and had success, love to hear about it. Just out of my own curiosity. <laughs> yeah, we did a couple of surveys when I was in-house at my old company. And I think the more specific you can get, the better, especially in the yes, no questions you ask or the one to five questions you ask. Um, and then always ending with like an open-ended question, like um, how, how has this product helped you? Is there something we could improve? How has it <clears throat> made your job easier, better, that kind of thing? Yeah, and Eddie just posted in the chat, and Eddie's actually going to be our uh, guest on our next IML episode in February, um, talking about a little bit, uh, you know, influencer marketing, buddy, the buddy branding system. Um, but Eddie said that he received the best engagement in past in the past from Facebook and LinkedIn groups. Eddie, I'm not sure if you want to, you know, come on today and talk, or we'll wait till next time. <laughs> yeah, Eddie, you're on mute. Wow. Idiot. Awesome. Cool. Hey, my name's Eddie and I'm a complete moron. So great start. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So that being said, um, really, yeah, really in the past, I think all of us together, one of our collective short goals, if you think about the core of the onion is to generate, cultivate attention, right? How we do it is everyone's preference. But if you also think about it from like a quantifiable standpoint, there are these interest groups specifically on LinkedIn and Facebook that that you can either take a shotgun approach or like fishing is the best analogy. Hate fishing, but here's a good analogy. You're trying to catch some specific type of fish and then somebody comes up and says, hey, you go to that corner over there. There's all kinds of bass. You're looking for bass? right over there. And I've done that in a variety of ways and I've gotten the best engagement. And then you make another good point. I've learned so much because if you all talk to machinists and you say one wrong thing, you might as well just end the conversation right there because you're irrelevant moving forward. So when you get to learn the lingo, it's super powerful. Yeah. Those later customer interviews can be a lot more uh, fun and useful than the initial ones. Once you learn some of the common pitfalls. And learning how to recover from one of those pitfalls is also a key skill. You know, that's just you being good at conversation at that point and trying to uh, get yourself back on track and get the get people happy to be having the conversation again, to just being a nice person, hopefully. Um, but you're going to have a few of those moments in your customer interviews that you got to work around probably in your early time, especially. All right. Any other questions, thoughts? Thanks, everyone. Okay, so I'm going to be getting into the part that I like the most and probably have the most discussion about, or at least I hope so, because I just like this stuff because I'm nerdy like that. And that is cognitive bias. Any copywriters out there probably heard of these or seen like a top 10 list or other things that breeze through this stuff really fast and give you an idea of maybe how to dip your toe into it. Um, so uh, we're just going to be going over the stuff that has been the most useful or relevant to us so far in the industrial space. But like I said, we're dipping a toe. This is a thing that people get doctorates on. So just keep that in mind. And if anything interests you, there's a ton of resources out there about this stuff, how it works psychologically. 
Um, there's not a whole lot about how it directly relates to industrial B2B marketing, but you know, if you're a good student, you can decide how to best apply these things to your business and your audience. Um, so just food for thought. So I'm going to start sharing again. We're getting into behavioral psychology here. Um, and some one of the ways that I think about myself as a conversion writer is I'm kind of like a DJ, right? And my readers are on the dance floor of their own emotions. And I'm trying to play the music that is going to get them moving in the direction I want at the speed I want and with the feeling that I want, right? So that's one thing to think about. You're always inspiring emotion, whether it's the most straightforward copy you've ever written in your life. The way that you do it will inspire a feeling. It's physically impossible to not. Um, so most tactics are based on cognitive biases and storytelling principles. I've got one that is more of a storytelling principle example later, but it's also a cognitive uh, thing. The word bias is kind of a little negative. These are just cognitive phenomenon. You know, you can think about it however you want, if it's negative or it's good, because these are how our brains have, have evolved to survive to this point. So we got to appreciate them. Um, so two of the most cogn basic cognitive biases that you're going to hear about when you Google this stuff are framing and priming. So these are stuff that are more of an entry point that you can use to get into other uh, tactics. Um, but framing is the tendency to view the same information in different ways based on how it's presented. So pretty easy. You would like delicious sushi way more than you would like someone who offers you a dead fish. And priming is similar. Um, it's just that the things that you have to think about first are going to affect the things that you, the way you think about things later. So um, this example here is one of my favorites. Mom, apple pie, and Ford pickup trucks, right? It's just putting Ford right in that American goodness that makes you feel like, man, if I'm a good American, I should probably go buy a Ford. So uh, any questions on those two? You probably have heard about those before. Gorillas, any ideas or thoughts? Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some good examples that we've used recently of this um, just to kind of help frame it. Uh, the only other one I can think of is like that. I know you use it. You're going to pull it up in an example, Alan, is the automated QC one where we're talking about a vision system, but we're framing it in terms of quality control. So putting quality control at the forefront and then the positioning the product as the solution to that. So just like, I think that's a good example of framing. So framing that first and then, you know, bringing the product in later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh uh, yeah, another thing that you can use in the priming realm that um, I did decided not to put a whole section on for this, but is emojis. Emojis can be a good primer, so keep that in mind. Um, you know, your audience is probably going to have varying patience for emojis, but you would be surprised how some how an emoji will actually help you out a little bit. You know, so don't be afraid to test it. Um, so, all right, we'll move on to the next one. Here, we're going to get a little bit deeper into some of the biases that I use fairly frequently that I think is going to will apply well to a lot of our people here. Okay. So the simplicity bias is one that I use a lot, right? And it's something we've been talking about this entire time. People like things that are easy. The most powerful word in the English language arguably is the word easy. So it promises that I'm going to get what I need and I'm going to do it with as little pain as possible. Um, now an example of this that in our work is the procurement made fast and easy. It might not be the cheapest, but it is going to be the simplest and you are going to do it with the fewest amount of headaches. And there's a lot of people in B2B that will pay extra money for fewer headaches. 
Um, another one here that's more of just your B to C or your common life experience is limitless minutes in your cell phone plan back when that was, you know, a thing that people talked about more, but a lot of people don't need limitless minutes. They could have survived within the range that of a limited plan, but it's simpler to have a limitless one. You don't have to worry about it. Right. So you're going to pay a little more for that ease that, that just, it's fine. I don't have to worry about it feeling. Um, the opposite of the simplicity bias, which also could be relevant to your audience, is the complexity bias. And everybody knows this guy who just loves everything that has 15 steps to it. They love Magic the Gathering because they can dig into it so deep. You know, they like chestnut checkers. They like complexity. And an engineering audience is probably going to have a few of those. So the trick is to be able to imply all of the good things that come from that complexity without beating the reader over the head with facts and details and dot, 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 you know, you got to be able to do that succinctly and in a way that just gets your point across and builds that trust without, you know, going over your word count. Um, any questions on that before I move on to the next one? I just want to add that I think that the complexity bias is something that is really nice when you're talking about something like demand generation using paid social, because you can tell pieces of the story and like drip it out and like get that message across, you know, kind of like take advantage of that tactic without having to shove it all into a 500 character count ad. Um, so you could kind of like teach your audience over time, use the arc of a yeah. story. And this is a good way that you can actually use that kind of teaser, like click to learn more kind of thing and not make it a bait and switch scenario where you imply, you give people a great idea of why the complexity of your process is going to solve their problem. And you say, if this sounds like a good idea, then click further to really get into the weeds with us. And that complexity boss person like, oh boy, yay weeds. Let me click. Alan, I have a question. Um, how do you think folks should go about like choosing their messaging tactic, right? Like, do you approach it from a testing framework or is it, um, are you choosing what your messaging is going to be based off of your customer interviews? Um, like, how do you kind of put that puzzle together? Yeah, good question. I should have touched on this before, but um, preferably it's going to be because you have customer interviews that all have some themes to them, some emotional themes, some things that they're all worried about, some ideas that they all have that might help them in the future. Um, so it should be pretty easy after you've gone through all your customer interviews to decide what emotional tone is going to relate and what the things that they really need to get done in their day-to-day -day are that you can highlight and talk about. Um, if you don't have customer interviews, it gets a lot more tricky. You're gonna have to use a bit more of your common sense on just what the buying process looks like, what your target audience is and what they're most of them are probably trying to do. Um, and, you know, try to work your way down from there with what you can pull off of um, social media and other places like we talked about. Um, but if you've done good customer research, it should be pretty easy for you to tell what is going to be a good starting point. Awesome. So if the, if three out of the four customer interviews you do, they say, you know, the thing I hate the most is that it's so difficult to just do easy things. This shouldn't be so hard and it drives me nuts and I got to take this frustration home and then my wife gets mad at me or, you know, whoever, you know, like that's that, that if they start saying that the simplicity bias is probably a good route. Love it. So if they, if there are similar messaging tactics though, that 
could potentially work, right? Like if you're seeing different themes within your customer research, um, do you think it's worthwhile to test those things against each other? Like when you're launching the ads? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we, we tend to have different types of ads that we're testing. And then within that, different variations of those types of ads so that we can really nail down what is the the framework, you know, whether it's a before, after or a social proof that's working the best, what messaging tactic within the hook that we used seems to have been performing the best within those subsets, what image pairing seems to have been going the best. No, that the more you have, the more data you have, the easier it is for you to nail down solid points to that. But you at least have an idea, some things that you can use to create uh, your next campaign based on the um, performance of the first one. Yeah. So you can take that data, find what's working, and then make an even better ad for the next round. You can write even better copy um, further down the line. So yeah. Cool. Yeah, if it worked the first time, then it probably if give it a shot the next time, maybe it'll work even better. So you don't have to just paper the campaign with all these different things and see what is just going to work best data-wise. You know, you you trust your instincts. That's what you're here for. But then back up your instincts with data. James had a question in the chat. Complexity bias versus length and strength. How are they different? Do they work together? James, I might need you to explain what you mean a little bit. I guess I'm I'm just curious, like length is strength being the bias that as you, let's say you barrage, I see this with like case studies or testimonials. Um, if you people set their testimonials up on the page to just extend and extend and extend, um, like the length is Im implying the trustworthiness of the testimonials. The fact that there's so many implies their value. Um, it's something like Eddie Schlainer talks about all the time, the guy who writes very good copy. And I'm curious, maybe Alan's perspective about how that's different than complexity bias. Um, you know, should they be used together? <laughs> like, should they not? Um, I don't know. I just kind of his thoughts on that is kind of what I'm curious about. If somebody is tends to enjoy complexity, then they're also probably going to be more willing to consume a lot more words. But I would say that if you don't have any good words to put in there, then don't. You know, the length make equal strength, I feel like is difficult for me to feel like really works as good in our this buying market because these buyers are a lot more aware and they, you know, tend to tend to read a little more closely, I guess. Um, and if they're not getting what they want out of what they're reading, I think they're more likely to bounce than somebody who's, you know, buying more on just a quick scroll and like, hey, I'll give it a shot because it's cheap or whatever. So that's what I would say. There is power in length if you have all of the goods to put in it. But don't just be putting words in because you think that more words are better than less words. That is probably going to bite you more than anything else. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Um, yeah, there's also a thing called the brevity bias. So, you know, you got to decide which way you want to go on that one. Some people are the too long, didn't read people real quick. And if you got a person who's already got a lot of trusted buyers, they're not going to waste their time with that. Probably they're going to be like, Hey, I'm just, just going to go do what I did last time. This is turning into a pain. 
All right, uh, so I'm still sharing my screen, I believe, right? Okay, so loss aversion is another one that I think is really fruitful in the B2B world if you use it correctly, um, because there's just so much money that's being put into these factories or whatever it is that they are really sensitive to losing what they've got, right? And this is something that runs really deep in everyone. Monkeys have loss aversion tendencies, right? Um, so one of the easy examples that we use a lot is don't risk your company's reputation on cheap equipment, right? It's, it's worth the investment to protect what you have built up. Um, you know, it's something that uh, you can all relate to in your everyday lives. So just put that into the work life and it's not too hard for you to really make some good hay out of that. Um, any questions about loss aversion? Okay. All right. Right on. So, and that's another one too, that there is ungodly amounts of literature and scholarship about loss aversion. You, you can spend the next week reading about loss aversion if you so choose. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and move on to our examples here. And um, keep in mind that, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of ads running right now. These are only three examples, but they're performing well. I figured you all would care to see some of the ones that were doing pretty good. Um, so the first one here. Um, this is for a metal cast tooling client of ours. I tried my best to remove all of the uh, brand identifiers here. Um, so our messaging tactics that I'm using here, um, which we've touched on a little bit already, is social proof. That's kind of like the ad overarching type, but also something that you do within the body of the ad, you know. Um, and then narrative priming. That is all about this beginning part here. Narrative priming means that you start your ad copy like you're gonna tell them a story and you get the brain ready to hear a story. You make them hungry for a story by how you start it. Um, and that's by using dynamic language that makes them ready. I'm in it, I'm here. I wanna, I wanna live out this life with you. So I try to do that here by just going with some, some dramatic language. Their reputation was on the line and they couldn't tolerate tooling holdups on their next big project. You know, just try to get them right in the scene. And then from there, we hit them with some quick info that lets them know exactly what the pain points are and lets the buyer qualify themselves real fast right here. Are these things you're worried about? Um, so yeah, you can see how we do that throughout most of the ad here, um, including with our on-image copy. Uh, so this one has got a, doing pretty good. It's got 13 conversions with a CTR, average CTR, I should add, of 5.84, cost per click of $1.48, and a total spend for this ad of 261 bucks and 84 cents. So for my money, I think that we're doing pretty good with this one. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions? All right, another thing to add real quick that I've noticed works really well about the image. I know we're not really, that's not really copy, but having a person and the product tends to work the best in my experience. Sometimes the customer doesn't want a person in the way. They want to see the product. But more often than not, if they already got a decent idea of what the product is going to look like, or the product is so complicated that one shot of it is not going to really do much justice anyway, having a person in there is going to help your, you the stop the scroll thing. It's going to make people look a little more closely. Um, so I always try to find photos that show a person interacting with the product in the behind the scenes kind of way, because that also gives people an idea that they're seeing something that they're not going to usually get a chance to. So they might stop scrolling just like, oh man, if I don't check that out, I might not get to see that again. 
Um, so yeah, any any thoughts, questions, gorillas, any additions? No, this is great. I love the um the specificity of the six month timeline, the six month delay is great. Lovely. All right. Well, moving on to example number two. Um, so this one um, uses an AI vision system. We've been going back and forth a lot about how we feel about AI vision systems as a term. Um, that's another thing you got to think about is, is whether the term that you are using at the core of your copy is something that your readers are searching for, looking for, et cetera. Um, so that's something sometimes you got to find through uh, just what's working the best when you're doing the ads, but hopefully your customer research can give you an idea of what the terms they use most frequently are. And that's probably what I would recommend you lean on is the day-to-day -day usage terms, unless they're like specifically searching for a technical term, because that's just like how precise their, um, their search is. So anyway, a bit of an aside there. But um, so the tactics I'm using in this one is dread aversion, which is related to loss aversion. Um, it's just got more emotional weight to it. Um, if you're going to be doing it more on frustration and less on just like dollars and cents, dread aversion can be a better way to think about it. Um, I'm also touching on simplicity bias and social proof. You know, um, so you don't need to pigeonhole yourself into just one tactic. Usually they kind of work in concert. You know, I like the DJ thing saying you can mash up different jams and have a whole different song going on. Um, so for this one here, we try to be as punchy as possible while still being able to get that emotional appeal across. Um, talking about human error is something that inspires frustration by just reading the words human error. Um, and since we are providing a automated solution to that, we want to contrast that, that frustration of human error with the simplicity of an AI solution. That's that's really the crux of what we're doing here. Um, but then we also give as much information as we can to allow them to self-qualify as, as we always want to do. Um, so conversions here, this has not been running that long, but we already got seven of them. Um, and this is another one where this ad has performed a lot better than the ones that are similar to it, because I think one of the reasons is it has this nice clear photo of the product that they're going to be looking for. Um, and it has some really clear ideas of um, what they're going to get out of reading the body copy from this um, headline here in the image. And that's something I don't know if I've spelled out completely, but when you're doing these ads, you want to think first, head, image headline. This is the very first thing most people are going to read. I know, you know, you can't, nothing's universal, nothing's absolute, but most people are going to read this image headline first. So that's where your big hook needs to come in. Then you want to go to the top line. That's like what I would consider your body headline. That if they didn't read this first, they're going to read this first, and they're probably going to end up reading it second. So that needs to instantly give context to what your um, image headline is. It needs to continue the baiting process. Um, that's what I call this the hook most of the time. Um, but really, they're both the hook. You know, you, they both need to catch people. Um, and then from there, you got the rest of your body copy, um, like you'd expect. And then the the link headline is what I consider the CTA most of the time. This is usually, if they read it at all, the last thing they're going to read before they land on your landing page. So that's why I said earlier that this is where it can pay off to just use the same terms that you're going to have as a landing page, um, if you, especially if you haven't done it before in the ad elsewhere. Um, so yeah, this uh, ad's been doing good with a 
CTR of 5.84, CPC of $1.48, and a spend of $261.84. Um, so no, also doing good. Um, and notice that we used emojis instead of the bullets here. That's something that I like to do because it's just a easy way to make those a little more eye-catching. Um, and I haven't seen it be a problem. You know, when we've tested normal bullets against the emojis, it seems like usually we're you're better off with the more eye-catching thing. Um so yeah. You've had a few um comments in the chat just wanting to like kind of clarify the difference between like loss aversion and like sunk cost. And uh yeah, just curious if you'd kind of talk on that a little bit more since it's kind of come up again. Um, so tactic. So yeah, sunk cost is like a layer down of loss aversion, right? So the sunk cost fallacy is that you are you feel like because you've already spent that um, X amount of money, that that X amount of money is more important than any of the other money you might save or gain from abandoning that solution, right? You've sunk that money into it and you just emotionally can't move on from it. Um, that's where the bias comes in. And loss aversion is like, a layer above that where it might not be completely illogical, you know, and no one wants to take a loss, right? So it hurts more than getting a win at the loss aversion level. At the sunk cost level, it's like taking that to the next step where you are doing things that are obviously detrimental to your well-being because you've already sunk that energy and resources into something and you don't want to give up on it. It can be like, that's where a pride and ego can come in. So is that does that make sense? Thanks, Alan. Okay, good deal. Yeah, sorry. I, mean, I was afraid I was going to get off on a confusing tangent there. Um, I probably did. <laughs> no, it's great. Example number three, um, FOMO. This is one of my one of my favorites when I get to do it because I just like the word or the acronym. Um, but so this example here, um, is from an electrical power equipment company. Um, we're trying to push VFDs in this case, variable frequency drives. They're the thing that power the speed of your electric motors. Um, so one of the, uh, things that this client is always telling us about is that a lot of people in the space are wasting money and missing out on obvious opportunities because they are just not taking these easy easy steps to update their power systems, right? So that's where I wanted to click on FOMO more than anything else. Um, there's a few different ways you could have gone at that feeling that people are just not updating things and and um, just because their current solution's already working, you know? But um, in this case, I wanted to take it more of like, hey, other people aren't falling behind and you might be. So don't miss out, get up, get on the train. Um, so, you can read here, you're missing out on huge energy savings if you're not pairing your AC motor with a VFD and um, going in from there with self-qualifying information. Um, but that opening line really does most of the work as well as the uh, image headline here. You know, they just kind of reinforce each other. And as well as our CTA, we really, really hammered down that FOMO and that question. Um, and that's something also I haven't talked about here. I said question close. I should have said question open as well. Um, but Leading and closing with a question can both be really powerful because it puts the brain into problem-solving mode. Even if you don't want it to, if you read a question and actually understand it, your brain is going to start answering it, even if you really don't want to. And so that is going to create the, the cycle that your brain isn't going to be content with or be finished with until it's reached the answer to that question. 
So it's going to make people more likely to continue reading down your body copy when you lead that way. And it also makes more people makes people more likely to click onto the landing page when you close with one, because again, it opens that thought loop. Now, again, we you can't do the bait and switch because this is the way people bait and switch. You got to deliver. But this is how you can make people more enticed to want to check out what you've got to offer, especially if maybe they've already got a solution they think is working pretty good for them. You know, you just got to give them that little extra emphasis to continue taking the effort to find a better solution. Alan, we've got a question from Dale just about the use of acronyms. What are your thoughts on acronyms in general? Acronyms are great if it's something your audience uses on a daily basis and they don't, there are probably some people in your industry that don't know what the acronyms even mean because they use the acronym so much that they never bothered to learn what they actually spell out, you know? So if that's the case, then use them. If not, then for the love of God, don't. It's, that's just completely, it's just all about what your audience is going to understand the quickest, the simplest, and be able to decide whether or not they want to move on to the next stage. This is great. This is great. Alan, thank you so much for putting together this um, this deck. I think that this has just been a, a just very informative session. Lots of great feedback in the chat. Thank you everyone for asking questions and uh, you know just contributing thoughts throughout. Um, super excited for this one to get up on YouTube. If you would like to keep the conversations going in between IML sessions, um, our next one's February 2nd. We're going to have uh, the one, the only Eddie Saunders Jr. joining us there to talk about buddy branding and influencer marketing. Um, hope you can join us then. Um, but uh, if you'd like to just ask more questions of Alan, ask more questions of the Gorilla team and all the other uh, marketers on this call, uh, join us in Slack. And if you'd want to join the Slack group, just put a little add me in the chat or uh, DM one of us on LinkedIn. However you want to get in touch, uh, we'll get you into the, the Slack group. And uh, yeah, just appreciate everyone for uh, coming, taking some time out of your Thursday morning. Hope you all have a great end of your week. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Had a great time. <laughs>